0: Well, I can't um, honestly tell you guys like how excited I am uh, just to be up here each week uh, in this series sharing this news um, with you all because I feel like the stuff that we're talking about in this series is so um, powerful and so potentially freeing um, that that I just just get pumped uh, to tell you guys uh, what I've been wrestling with and discovering just really desperate for you all to embrace this. And just kind of allow the power of these truths to kind of wash over your hearts and minds in ways that fill you with hope that your life could actually change and be different. Uh, this morning, I kind of had this, this vision of of what this is kind of like. It's kind of like those um, videos you see on Twitter of the people that um, are colorblind who put the goggles on where they can see color for the first time, right? The ones you go into it thinking, okay, I'm not going to cry when I watch this, and then you end up, you know, bawling like a baby, right? Because it's just so overwhelming. I mean, you see these people, and they don't even know what to say. They just take it all in, and they're just like, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize that there was so much there, (laughs) so much more beautiful than they ever could have imagined and that's what I feel like when we start talking about grace and when we start to really begin to have a concept of what that could mean for our lives to truly understand God's heart for us it's just overwhelming and and we've been talking about two paths that stretch out before us in terms of our our, our relationship with God, how we walk with him. We've talked about the path um, that is called the path towards pleasing God that leads to the room of good intentions. And then we've talked about this other path, the path of trusting God, which leads to the room of grace. And at the end of my time a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how it's not as simple as just making a one-time decision that we're going to live from a grace perspective um, forever, and then it's just done that it's a daily decision because the kingdom of this world, the performance-based perspective has a grip on us. It's not easily discarded. That perspective is, is like it's sunk its claws into our psyche for years. This message that we have to perform to be loved, that God is disappointed in us. That he's somehow disgusted as we talked about this kind of pile of sin. That he's kind of looking at all that we've done and all we continue to do. And our inability to clean it all up and to manage it. And then he's just disappointed in us. And then then we've talked about this concept of grace. This idea that we're getting something that we don't deserve. That we were made righteous in God's eyes because Christ became sin for us, and it just seems too good to be true. It smells fishy, like this idea that like you've kind of won the lottery, and then all of a sudden, or you hear somebody's won the lottery, and then all of a sudden, the winning ticket winds up in your mailbox, mailed to you. <laughs> you're like, this is too good to be true, right? Remember when you were really young, and they used to send those car keys, you know, from those dealerships, when you were like 15, you're like, we're going to win, you know, we're going to get the car, and you know, it's like, no, you never win. Nobody ever wins right? It, it shouldn't be that easy when we think about grace. And we talked about the room of grace, a place where God is pleased with us, where his arm is around us. We talked about that visual a couple of weeks ago where God is, is with us, his arm around us, and we're looking at our pile of sin together. And he's whispering to us, hey, I got this. It's, it's not your pile to clean up. I've taken care of it. And so we've wrestled with those visuals. And man, that feels really good mentally when we kind of begin to understand that. And we try so hard, right? We wake up and I kind of challenge you to think this way that in the morning to think, okay, this is going to be a good day, right? I'm going to remember that God loves me just as I am. And we might even begin to be able to get some traction on on our past, to, to maybe begin to believe that, okay, those things that I've done in my previous years, that, may, that maybe God could really forgive me for that. That that stuff in my rearview mirror is gone and taken care of. And we might begin to get some healing for that. But inevitably, the true test comes when we fail in the present. Right? When we do some of the things that we swore that we're, we're trying to get rid of, we're trying to eradicate from our lives, and we find ourselves right back where we didn't want to be. We find ourselves cutting corners morally, right? We, we, we lie about something, we conceal something, we try to kind of cover over our tracks. Or maybe we're, we're selfish or we're angry or we're impatient and we hurt the ones nearest to our hearts again. And every one of us, if I went around and passed the mic, could probably tell a story how uh, if in, just in the last 24 to 48 hours, of how we found ourselves doing things that we, we swear we'd never do again, like that that's not who we want to be, but we can't seem to break some of the cycles. And in those moments of, of kind of perceived failure, that's where the shame comes pouring in. And like a habit we thought we' kicked. <laughs> we run to the nearest closet looking for escape, and we, we pull out that mask. And we put it back on to kind of cover over our our pain and our fears. Justin talked about the mask that we wear last week. The author of The Cure, this book that we've been kind of basing some of our series on, told us this. He said, I will, each of us will, be tempted to return to my mask each time I lose the confidence of my new identity. And shame says that it's, it's my responsibility to be good enough for God to love me. And the view from shame locks us in our worst moments. I want you to hear that again. The view from shame locks us in our worst moments. And in our minds, we become, we think we become the sum total of all of our biggest failures. That that's kind of who we are. And many of us are even really like quite aware of the irony of this whole predicament. Because scripture, some of which we've memorized, is actually shouting the exact opposite storyline to us. Okay? Here's just a couple of verses. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. Right after he talks about that, we're all. If you're in, anyone in Christ, is a new creation, right? He says all of this is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. In Romans eight one. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, it's pretty abundantly clear <laughs> in Christ what our status is before God, how He views us. Okay? And because those things are true, the writer of Hebrews can go on and say this: in Hebrews 4:16, Scripture tells us, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. But here's the problem. Does someone drowning in shame come confidently to anything? (laughs) No, we don't. When we're dealing with shame, what's our posture towards God and others? What would you guys say? When we're dealing with shame, what's our posture towards God and others? Yeah, Chris? Unworthiness? Sure, what else? Turn away? What's that, what's that? Hide, Hide. okay, sorry, thank you. Yeah, we hide, we don't wanna be around him because we don't feel like we're worthy of it, okay? Anything else? What about our posture towards others? We what? We isolate ourselves. Yeah. We don't want to hear that thing people are going to tell us. We don't want to look our brother or sister in the eye who we promised we were going to not do that anymore and have to tell them that we did it again. Yeah, Brett. We become critical of others. We We judge others. Yeah, we see others' flaws. Good. It's pretty obvious what some of those paths are. And this really gets back to this trust issue when we blow it, which is inevitable, will we, will we believe the promises of God about our true identity, or will we believe the lies of the enemy? And there's a lot at stake in those moments. And the main character in this book had that experience. He'd blown it, and so the story goes that he slips out of the room of grace in the middle of the night... And he starts walking, and he finds this obviously pretty well-worn path that's kind of like a shortcut back over to the Room of Good Intentions. And so he starts off heading that direction, and he's ruminating on his failure. And it says that he stops, and he just stands there for a moment. And he's discouraged. And like a lot of us, he's telling himself the old familiar story, Jesus is disappointed in me. I'm not really changing. I'm still really just the same old guy. Can't get it together. But then a a voice pipes up behind him, almost kind of freaks him out for a moment. One of his friends from the room of grace has followed him. Apparently, he didn't um, shut the door quietly enough when he left. But then they have this very interesting conversation. So his friend says, Are you done here yet? What do you mean? I mean, let's get out of here. I'm not dressed for this crowd. I'm in my pajamas. I could see that he was. How did you know to find me here? Well, where else would you go? I used to make the pilgrimage myself often enough. Really? I'm not the only one who's done this? Oh, it happens all the time. As soon as you walked out the door, someone yelled, we got a runner. I figured it might be you. So I started walking. Look, you don't have to come back with me. Stay as long as you like. I just wanted to make sure that you weren't beating yourself up. I was. I know. Without a word, he turned, and I followed. Now, something, you know, is going to stand out to everybody here differently about that conversation The first time that I read that conversation, what leapt off the page to me was that very last sentence. Without a word, he turned, and I followed. So, what's your hypothesis, (laughs) right? Because this is just a story. Why do you think he turned and followed his friend so quickly? What do you think? Yeah. There was no judgment. Yeah, so he felt safe. It's good. Good observation. Yeah. He knew how he was feeling, had identified, right? I'd been there before. So he, he, yeah, again, it created this safe space where it's like it was okay to be there. But, guys, as we talk about these two kind of opposing ways of operating in our relationship with Christ, Community is so critical. It's so critical to this. This, These paths and figuring this out is not something we can do on our own, especially when we're talking about this new kingdom way of trusting God and his grace. We need watchmen in our lives. People who are in it with us, who are pursuing us, who are, are tenderly inviting us back in reminding us of what's true, exposing the lies that we're believing. We need people who know our stories. Because if you know somebody's story, then you know their triggers. And when you see them being triggered by something, you can help them see, like, hey, do you see how this happened and that you're responding like this? And you can help them kind of connect the dots to why they're acting the way often they don't want to be acting because you know enough about their journey to speak into it. We need friends who can reveal our blind spots, speak hope into our hearts when we're convinced that we're never going to change. We need friends who will go out in the middle of the night in their pajamas to bring us back in from wherever we've been wandering. And our role is to submit to a trusted friend's care. And this is hard, guys, to be humble enough to admit that there will be seasons in your life where you're too vulnerable to be trusted to make important decisions. I've been in those places with some of my friends. Times where they were so hurt and confused and kind of filled with shame um, that I honestly had to step in and say, Hey, I need you to trust me here for a while. I need you to let me be your rational thoughts for a season. And I'm actually going to kind of tell you some things that I want you to do. (laughs) And I want you to just trust me and do them. And please, for God's sake, before you make any decisions, call me. (laughs) All right? And that is really hard. It's not an easy conversation for me to have with somebody else. um, And it's not an easy conversation for them to receive and and to go along with. It, It requires an unbelievable amount of trust. Believing the best about one another. He turned and I followed. God, what a beautiful picture of community, of grace there. It makes me think of the disciple Peter, right? Here was a guy who was striving so hard to please Jesus. I mean, he wanted to be the rock star disciple of all disciples, right? When, when Jesus said, you know, hey, I'm going to walk on water. Who wants to come out with me? He's like, I'm in, right? Bring me on out. I want to walk to you. When Jesus is talking about going to the cross, he's Jesus, he, you know, Peter's like, Jesus, I'll die for you if I have to. So loyal, so sure that he would always come through, always. But then he blows it, right? Disowns Jesus, denies him three times, just like Jesus predicted that he would. I want you to open your Bibles to Luke 22, page 960 if you're in your pew Bibles. So this is that scene where Jesus has been arrested Peter's kind of trying to listen in on the conversation, what's going on in the court. People around him are are questioning him. You're a Galilean. I think I saw you with Jesus. Do you know him? He denies him. Get down to verse 60 in chapter 22. For the last time, Peter replies, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Man, it's one thing to feel like you've let God down. But could you imagine having to look the physical Jesus in the eye when you'd blown it like he had? Oh, goodness. You want to talk about just like flying down a slippery slope of despair pretty quickly. But it's interesting to see how the story unfolds from there. Because just a couple chapters later, Peter's back hanging out with the boys again, right? He's with the other disciples. And so for one, that tells us that the community didn't shun him just because he'd messed up. But secondly, it tells me that Peter didn't avoid the community, He didn't go off and isolate like we talked about. He came back, which shows a lot about his integrity. Then in John chapter 21, the resurrected Jesus begins making breakfast for the disciples. Remember that scene, they're out fishing. And and when Peter sees it, it's the Lord on the shore, man, he's racing up to him. And Jesus in this moment, this interaction, he reinstates Peter into friendship with him. He reminds him, hey, it's okay, I'm I'm still in this with you. And Jesus doesn't chastise him, doesn't humiliate him, doesn't even ask him to apologize. He just extends Peter grace. And that grace is like a hurricane wind into Peter's soul that's going to like set sail uh, for his discipleship and his ministry for, for decades to come. Failure hadn't been the end of his story. Let's rejoin the rest of of the conversation as they're walking back to the room of grace. It says, After a while, back on the path winding towards the coast, I asked, Why did I do that? Why did I come back here? Man, that first day in the room of grace, I thought I'd never see life the same. You don't see life the same but the stories we tell ourselves can run deep. It's one thing to have a profound experience, and it's quite another to kill a lie that's served you a long time, especially a lie you've used to cope. Until you see God right, you'll keep going back there. What's that supposed to mean? Well, there are two gods, the one we see through our shame and the one who actually is. Let's take a longer look at that statement. The stories we tell ourselves can run deep. It's one thing to have a profound experience. It's quite another to kill a lie that served you a long time, especially a lie you've used to cope. Until you see God right, you'll keep going back there. Do you guys know what those lies are for you? Are you self-aware enough to where you can kind of pinpoint some of those lies that you've used to cope in life, those narratives you've trained your mind to believe so that you can get through whatever's gone on in your life or is going on now? It's important that first we begin with awareness, (laughs) to know what those are, maybe invite some friends into that conversation. But now we're starting to see why it can be so easy for us to hop back and forth between these two paths, the two ways of operating on our Christian journey. We all have these lies that we've used to cope for a long time, and those lies have to be killed in order for us to fully embrace our true identity. Or we'll tend to settle for a cheap substitute over the true and lasting grace that God desires for us. And the problem with getting rid of the lies in our lives is that it's kind of like the weeds that we pull, where we just only pull the top part above the ground and we don't get down to the root. We may say, "Man, I'm going to decide to live from a grace-filled perspective today, and I'm, I'm going to strive to not try to earn God's love through my performance today." And that might really be a very strong and real desire in our hearts. We might we might genuinely want that with every sense of our fiber, right? But the problem is, most Christians that I've come across, we have not done the hard work of healing. So, when that familiar trigger comes, whatever that might be, those old uh, familiar neural pathways that Summer talked about in our class a couple weeks ago, they just start firing automatically. Right? Right back into that lie, we believed for so long, I'm not good enough. Or maybe the opposite, I'm pretty darn good. (laughs) To the fact where I don't really need anybody else, I can kind of handle life on my own. Whatever narrative might be for you. And we find ourselves in the middle of the night, back on that shortcut, over to the room of good intentions because we don't know how to live from our true identity. Because guys, honestly, a lot of people are still stuck in unresolved, unhealed pain that overrides our heart's desire to live differently. And as you can imagine, that kind of the deep and lasting change takes time, and we don't like that, right? It takes a lot of patience because we're going to get it wrong. We're, we're trying to unlearn and, and be retrained into a whole new way of thinking, of, of, of following Christ in this grace-filled perspective, and it, we're going we're gonna to mess up. And what we do in those moments is so critical, it's going to take patience. It's going to take mindfulness, right? We can't just kind of drift through life thinking that we're going to change and we're going to operate differently. We, we have to be mindful. We have to concentrate and have, you know, scriptures that we're memorizing or, or visual cues that kind of recenter us many times throughout the day back on what's true. It's going to take a community of believers that we can trust to remind us of what's true. Living in the new way of grace is not going to happen easily. But there's a perspective change that I think can potentially speed the process up just a little bit. Okay? For one, Scripture tells us that we've been made righteous by Christ. He's declared us justified by his blood. He says that we are holy, chosen saints. And he says that when we surrender our life to him, that we become one with him like he is with the Father. Okay, so in that one relationship, we cannot get any closer to Jesus than we already are. All right, so we're not, none of us here are striving, if we're, if we're followers of Christ, we're not striving to get closer to Jesus. We are one with him, okay? And that's not based on our performance. It's not something that we gain through good behavior or lose through bad behavior, It just is because God says it is. He tells us that this is true. It's an undeserved gift that we receive. So having that theological um, perspective correct is a really good starting point. All right? And honestly, most Christians don't get it, don't understand that. They've never been taught. They don't understand what that looks like and how to live from that. So the fact that maybe some of you in here might be starting to get that, that's great. It's a good starting point, okay? Secondly, I think we need this really important reminder, a quote from our book here on page 35. If I follow the first path, pleasing God, I'm trying to change from who I was into who I should be. If I follow the second, trusting God, I'm maturing into who I already am. In the first, I'm working toward becoming more righteous. In the second, I'm already righteous, made right by God in the moment I believed. What are your thoughts on that? What strikes you from that quote? Mm, mm mm-hmm yeah yeah she says this is what we tell a lot of people when we're telling them about jesus and this life we can have in him but that we have a hard time believing it for ourselves that's good yeah Yeah, He says anytime he's kind of in that pleasing God mode, that he doesn't feel righteous. It feels like something he's striving to gain, right? Or get back that he lost somewhere along the way, right? When you're in that path of, of trusting God and your mind's right, you can begin to believe that that's who God says I am. Man, it's a totally different feeling in terms of pressure, right? I'm just maturing into our, our, who I already am, I'm not having to to change. I'm just having to live out what's already true. It's a completely different mindset. Guys, every year I go on a trip. Last weekend was when I was gone. I went to Colorado. Um, We've been going about seven or eight years with a group of friends of mine, um, some of whom were college friends. Some worked on Young Life staff with me a long time ago. A couple guys here from Wellspring and and we go out and we spend a couple days in Breckenridge, and we, um, during that time, there's seven of us this year, we all go around and we take time to just kind of give a yearly update on our life. Um, so sometimes it could be anywhere from an hour to two hours, like of really just kind of sharing everything about our family, our work, our spiritual life, our personal life, and then allowing people to kind of ask questions and kind of probe around a little bit, um, and so there 's a guy that just started coming a couple of years ago that that went to college with us and um, to, to to where this is this this way of operating is a pretty new thing for him. Uh, this idea of just really being vulnerable and open and then having people kind of ask questions and if any of you have spent much time with me, I can ask some really hard questions <laughs> penetrating questions uh, people that are on my staff are just like, "Oh my God, what is he going to ask me this week right so um, so anyways we 're talking and um at one point last weekend, this guy was talking about his spiritual life, and he started going down the pleasing God path. And since we've been talking about this so much, it was like a siren going off in my head, right? And it, it, these were his exact words. I've got to be better at whatever. I got to be better at reading the Bible. I got to be better at praying, blah, 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 whatever it is. And it was just like, oh my gosh, dude, no, no. I had to stop him, and as loving as Bob can be loving, right? I said, listen, you need to rest in God's love and pleasure with you. Let that soak in before you start trying to just do stuff for God. It's dependence over performance. And it's a choice that we have to make every single day. And guys, grace is God's great gamble. He, he's put all of his cards on the table face up so we can see him. He's not hiding anything. As the author John Lynch puts it, he says this, it's like God is saying, what if they knew the basis of our friendship isn't how little they sin, but how much they allow me to love them? Guys, when I read that quote, I had to put the book down and walk away for a while. Literally, it was, it was stunning to me what I had just read. That's a radically different scorecard, isn't it? Of evaluating our spiritual life. It's a wholly different way of relating to God than most of us are used to or comfortable with. And guys, as a church community, we've got to start asking each other different questions. When you ask a friend how they're doing spiritually, and they start spitting out the same old, well, I'm, you know, I'm reading my Bible, and I'm not that any of those things are bad. But just because you are or are not doing those things regularly does not necessarily equate to you're doing okay spiritually. (laughs) There are lots of people that aren't doing that very regularly that are loving God and others amazingly. And people who are rigid and awesome at doing that every day who can't love people worth a hill of beans. We've got to start asking different questions What if the question became more of, how are you doing at allowing God to love you? Has anybody ever asked you that question in relationship to your spiritual journey and how it's going? Literally, who? Raise your hand. Anyone? Right? And we wonder why we struggle with this performance thing when all we do is reinforce that that's how you become closer to God and that that's, well, you're okay, or you're not okay, man, you need to pick that up. Come on, man. Get your, you know, there's plenty of plans on the internet. Just pick one. Do it. Right? Whew. Sorry. Bob's getting excited. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to close with this. I want you to open your Bibles to page 1067, Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2, 3, we looked at this the very first week of this series when we were talking about our, our status apart from God. That's the verse where he says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, right? And then in verse 4, Paul writes this, but because of his great love for us, God who was rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Guys, as followers of Christ, you and I have already been seated in the heavenly realms. Okay, past tense. In God's eternal perspective, each one of us has already been raised, already been seated with Christ. He, God already sees us in our glorified state. He sees who we're going to be for eternity. And what he's asking us to do is to join him in seeing ourselves (laughs) like he already sees us. We're maturing into who we already are. Stop trying to earn what you already have. Stop trying to perform to be loved when you already are. Because there's something extremely compelling and attractive about a community of people who are starting to learn what it looks like to live in the room of grace. People want to be around those kinds of people. I want to be that kind of person, right? I want us to be there. So I don't know what you're going to take away from that. There's a million different things maybe that struck you today, okay? But man, I guess if anything, I'd love for you to sit in that last quote a little bit, Could you just put that last one back up there again Uh, of just how much they allow me to love them and and just let that ruminate around a little bit and and cause you some uncomfortableness like it does for me. You can take a picture of that if you want. We're going to take communion today. Uh, man. I mean, that's just what grace is all about, right? Undeserved. Jesus did it for us. He paid it all. He was broken. He was poured out so that we might be in relationship with him, that we might be free, that we might be loved, that we might not have to perform, right? So when we come to the table, it's a reminder of what's true. I don't have to earn it. (laughs) It's given. It's a gift, Imagine, you know, how frustrating it is for a parent, right, if we get this awesome gift for our kid at Christmas, and then they run to their room to count their money out of their piggy bank trying to pay us back for it. That just kind of ruins the whole gift idea, right? No, this is my pleasure to get you this bike or whatever it is that you want right now, right? You don't have to buy it from me. As we um, pray, I'll give you some space to just connect connect with God. You can come up and tear bread um, and dip it in the cup. And then there's gluten-free will be down on that end if you need that as well. Let's pray.